0: You are listening to The Root Simple Podcast. On this 129th episode of The Root Simple Podcast, a conversation with herbalist Eaglesong Gardener. But first, we'd like to thank all our listeners, but especially our Patreon subscribers at the $10 a month and above level. So thank you to David, Sandy, and Robert. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can find a link on our blog at rootsimple.com. Our guest is Eagle Song Gardener, Reading from her bio, Eagle Song is a human being, green witch, herbalist, crofter dedicated to deep transformation on an individual and planetary scale. She tends a spiral garden at the Pacific Wise Women Center in Monroe, Washington, and inspires the Pacific Women's Herbal Conference on Vashon Island each fall. And now my conversation with Eagle Song Gardner. All right, Eagle Song, uh, great to talk to you. Tell us where you're, where I'm, where am I talking to you from this morning?
1: I am in Monroe, Washington, uh, north, the west side of Washington state, about 40 miles northeast of Seattle.
0: Cool. And your bio says a lot of things about you that I think we're going to have to dig deeper into. But a uh, human being, Greenwich, herbalist, crofter. Uh, and um, I think we're going to talk a lot about herbalism in, in this half-hour hour. Let's start with maybe your background. How did you come to, to be uh, interested in plants and interested in, in herbalism?
1: Well, first I was, I've always been interested in nature. I found as a child um, that was the place I really felt the most at home, and I was encouraged by my mom, who was a very busy person, to go outside and play. And I have used that as a model for my life. And I also would say I'm a positive contrarian. I really wasn't believing a lot of what I was seeing and hearing around me. And yet when I went to nature, there was a lot there that I that I, could feel was, was true. And so plants, I would say, have led me on through my entire life. And, and getting to know them in many different ways is really one of the biggest joys of my life.
0: So tell me your approach to teaching. You've got um, uh, something called Healing from the Ground Up coming up, which is an herbal apprenticeship. Uh, How do you impart this knowledge that you have about herbs and this love of plants to to students?
1: Well, first of all, I I don't usually think of people as students. I think of them as co-learners that we're all here to learn and my big question when I was young was, how does nature do it? How does nature actually grow this magnificent bounty of life and abundance around us? And I've never seen her pick up a shovel. And so I wanted to know how to to interact with nature in a way that allowed me to have um, the things I wanted around me, but not necessarily to make it more work than it needed to be. Uh, to, to to let nature do a lot of the lifting and to follow her lead. So that's really the, – the garden is the teacher, and we maintain livestock. We have goats and chickens, and right now we have some geese. And so these are really the the creatures and the plants have shown me so many things about how to live with nature, and that is – how I interact with people who come to learn. So ours is an apprenticeship. We also have classes and and weekend, what we call summer herb camps, where people who just want to dabble and, and get a little bit of this or that can come. But people who are really dedicated to to learning from the plants, we have a nine-month apprenticeship, and then the second year is a full-year apprenticeship offering for people to come. Uh, and really, just engage with the life of the Croft.
0: So, what what does that mean? That word mean Croft,
1: <laughs> right? Like all words, Eric, the the word Croft is many, many meanings. And I don't really know. I just when I came to this place where I am now, which I've been here 27 years, the name Raven Croft was the name that that seemed to be the one this place wanted to be called. And so Raven turns out to be the trickster. Croft, we say, is a little bit bigger than a garden but smaller than a farm. So we're actually only on four-fifths of an acre. In Europe, crofting came about after the clearances. People had small holdings, but mostly they rented them from the land holders. So there's a lot of political and um, interesting history around the re- the word croft, but for our intents and purposes, it just signifies that that we're not really a garden and we're not really a farm. We're something a little bit different than that.
0: So it's unfortunate we're, we're talking via audio here and we can't walk around your croft, but if we were, what would it... What would it look like? How is it different than, say, a um, conventional garden with lots of rows? Or how is it (laughs) different than maybe a wild space?
1: Wow, that is such a great question, Eric. We live in this now. Well, they're not quite the suburbs. But I live in a place that is, is becoming very heavily populated. And what many people who have come here have said, it's like an emerald in a desert. So I've been fascinated by diversity. I wanted to have a lot of different kinds of plants around me. And as a gardener, I've been a gardener my whole life. I grew up in a a gardening family. You know, there's as many different ways to garden as there are gardeners. And so Ravencroft is a little bit of all of it surrounded by hedges. And the hedges are, some of them are dead hedges where we just put dead material it, it is too bad we can't see it because it's quite interesting. So we have the Triskeel Garden. That's a garden that's been in place for 27 years and it's gone through many changes. We have a new what we call the Box Garden, and it's a raised bed garden that's planted on top of a driveway, a gravel driveway. We have the Dooryard Garden, which is a really fun garden where plants get to grow up and drop their seeds, and and we learn how to work with their rhythm and pace. And so so we have everything. We've got things in rows. We've got the wild parts of the garden where nobody's allowed to go. We've got um, hedges that hold everything on all four sides. And so, so it's a really quite eclectic. I'd say it's an eclectic garden.
0: Let's, let's talk about those hedges a little more. I noticed on your website, and we'll have a link to your website in the show notes for the show, but uh, I noticed that you did a hedge medicine workshop. What sort of things did you cover? What are those? Well, let's, I guess, describe those hedges and then um, maybe say a little bit more about what you covered in that workshop.
1: Well, you know, a lot of things in, in life sneak up on us from behind, I've noticed, at least for me. And I didn't really set out to to know anything about hedges. I didn't really set out to know, I didn't set out to become an herbalist. It was quite, uh, because I lived in many different situations in my life, and one of them was way out in the mountains where I decided to have my children. Um, We were a two-mile driveway, snowed in in the winter, pretty remote. And so um, just had a lot of different opportunities that came upon me because of decisions I made and yet at the same time nothing turned out the way i thought it would so hedges are like that and the 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 first thing that brought me to the hedge was a tree called the hawthorn tree and people sometimes ask me questions like what's it good for was a question that was difficult for me to answer when people would want to know what's a good what's a what's a plant good for it was always relative to some disease or some situation in their life. And to me, that's kind of a dead-end conversation. I wanted to tell them all about, you know, the the different insects and mammals and birds that live with that plant. So Hawthorne could see my angst and invited me to go on a trip with her, which involved going to five different countries, studying Hawthorne, and really starting to look at what is nature good for? What am I good for? How come any of us are all here? Well, that's kind of a hard question to answer in one minute. So I've learned that the hedges are about boundaries, about living boundaries, where it takes a lot of different life forms to create a good hedge. In England, 60% of the hedgerows are made with hawthorn trees. Hawthorne's an excellent plant for the heart. So I'm going to tell you about our south hedge because it's a really amazing hedge in that it has one, two, three. It has four different types of hawthorn growing in the hedge, plus native plants for the area I live in. And so there's a hawthorn that's used as a street tree in many cities around the United States. There's a hawthorn that's a cross between a rowanberry and a hawthorn tree, which is very rare. It took 20 years for that tree to actually grow up and bear fruit. Of course, we made wine with that right away. There's a hawthorn that's the native hawthorn here, the Crotagus deglossii. And, and then there's just a, a wilding hawthorn that put herself there because she wanted to be there. And so then there's a lot of other trees and shrubs in that hedge that actually provide cover for birds A lot of insects come. We have a lot of birds and insects come here because there's a lot of construction around us, so it's sort of like a safe zone. Um, And we have enough habitat that the creatures actually do enjoy coming here. So each side of the croft has a different kind of hedge because north is different than south, and different things were there when we first moved in. So that's a little bit about the hedges and a little bit about my approach to herbalism, which I would say in some odd way, approached me. Figuring out how to get it all to work together and be part of it is really the medicine for my life.
0: Well, and that relationship, it sounds like, is really important to you rather than going beyond, as you said, that first question of, well, how do I use this? How, what do you suggest for people who want to develop like a deeper relationship to plants or to the natural world? How do you, how do you kind of get started with that?
1: Well, we encourage people to start with one plant, something that's very common, something that's around them, that they can see every day. And then really the best exercise is to go through an entire year with that plant and watch how it grows, how it changes through the seasons, how does it reproduce itself, all those things. But if you actually take one plant and sit with it 10 minutes a day, for 10 days and really, really tune into the plant and, 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 and look deeply at that plant, you can actually get there in that amount of time. So you create a way of observing that puts the thing you're looking at in the primary role, not because of what you can get from that plant, but because of what that plant is willing to give to you if you open yourself to it. Which means everybody's gonna get something a little different from each plant. So we can tell people how to do it, but we can't really tell them what's gonna happen.
0: And speaking of that relationship, what's a typical, say, what's spring now here? I don't know what it's like there yet, whether it's warmed up enough, but what's a typical day for you of gardening?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's such a great uh, question. I, I work at home. So a typical day for me, I'll start with today. I get up in the morning and I have my tea. And that's my, my time to visit with my partner, my time just to check into myself and see what I, how I'm feeling, what's going on inside of me, um, sort of set my day up um, and the direction. Then we have breakfast. Then I go out and I melt the goat, bring in the milk and, and strain it. Then I go out and finish up. The chickens feed the chickens, um, feed the goslings. And that is a lot of relationship development because they basically are depending on me to make sure that their everyday runs with some sort of order. And we benefit from having them on the croft. The goats maintain the hedgerows so that they don't overgrow and the blackberries are checked, and then they provide milk for us. So we get all the chores done, um, and I love the word "chore," uh, because to me it's a part of the thing that holds me. It's like the hedge of my daily living, is this routine that, that happens every day. And then I come in and I do like an hour of work on the computer. I look at my Facebook message, um, you know, do emails, things like that. Then I go back outside and I work for an hour in the garden. And, and it just really helps relieve that screen time and like that. And so right at this time, we are really into planting. We've got potatoes and peas and um, onions and leeks. All of the alliums are in. And so the rhythm is the spring garden. We're just coming to May Day, um, that, that beautiful day that's right between the the spring equinox and the summer solstice. So we're halfway to the zenith, the longest day of the year. And we're starting to shift away from spring planting and more thinking about our summer planting. So beans and squash and those kinds of plants will be seeded. We do all of our seeding, almost all of our seeding in a greenhouse and then we transplant out because we can manage the the production better that way. Except in the dooryard garden, where it is total chaos, plants uh, self mm. so. It's So we have everything, you see. It's like because there's so many different ways to be with the garden, it just makes it fun. So then what about herbalism? I'm talking a lot about vegetables. Right. We have a hun- over 100 different herbs that are just uh, – I went through a 20-year spell or a 10-year spell where I worked out and the garden sort of took over and did whatever she wanted to do and so my whole orderly herbalist life was um upturned upturned and and a lot of the herbs that actually settled in and really got rooted deeply are still here and so they are the weedy annuals and perennials like dandelions and plantain and and those plants are abundant and everywhere there's honeysuckle and a lot of uh, witch hazel and Trilliums, plants that a lot of people don't think of as herbs but have been used as uh, medicinal plants around the world. Because I'm an eclectic gardener, I've got all kinds of plants from around the world that are herbs. So the herbs just sort of fill all the interstitial spaces.
0: What are some maybe unusual herbs that uh, people may not have heard of that we'd find in in your collection of herbs?
1: Oh, my goodness. We're really about common.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, well, yeah. We'll say then, more about that then.
1: Well, I actually like to have plants that are abundant and useful around me. When I first came to Ravencroft, I wanted to walk out my door and have food or medicine every day of the year. Either I had it fresh in the garden, from the garden, or it was uh, dried and we could use it then so i guess my, my my most um two interesting plants that i have as herbs because i've really been smitten by hawthorn i have a hawthorn a chinese hawthorn and then the hawthorn crossed with the mountain ash the rowanberry. Hmm. it's it's a those two plants i think are two of my most unusual plants but i have um the plant that's called oregon grape where i live around here there's a lot of, of different species in that same genus. And so I have two different Asian ones here, and they can be used the same way. So we we actually have um, I have Chinese chrysanthemums growing, uh, ramps, which aren't from the northwest, but a friend of mine in Virginia sent some up so we could get them planted here and see if they could take a hold. Uh, so the garden is also about relationship with people and uh it's relative to people I know in my life, plants I've I've gotten from people, p- people have given me. Uh, a friend of mine once just sold their property last year, and I was at their place while they were tidying up and getting ready to leave. And I said, oh, Allison, could I get a cutting off of that black currant? I lost mine when I was uh, working full time. And she goes, oh, sure. Take all you like. You actually gave that to me.
0: <laughs> oh, that's nice.
1: And so that's that old time way of of being in relationship, not just with the garden, but with other people in the world around me that also love garden. And so in a sort of funny way, we just foster things back and forth to each other. And it really, I think that speaks highly to the way that I practice herbs, herbalism, is that it's really about how it's all how we are all connected how things that are easy to grow, easy to propagate, easy to share, are really important right now. So not so many exotics, but occasionally some because it's fun.
0: Right. Now, well, maybe let's talk about a few of those common plants because you mentioned some on your blog. Uh, one is thyme. You say thyme for thyme. Yeah. Um, tell Thanks. me about thyme.
1: So thyme is, um, you see, the culinary herbs are like, to me, the, the um, the stealth herbs like they just hang out with people. They're very adept adept at at living close with people, and because they're so beneficial to our making our food taste better, they're easy to grow as long as you have sunny, well drained soil. The thyme is one that I use a lot in the winter because it stands well through our winters. And that's when we most often bring time into our um, diet. So using the herbs, I I like to say bringing herbs to life, bringing the herbs into my daily life, not just waiting till I'm sick. What fun is that? It's like wanting to have the plants come into my life in as many ways so that I can use them as often as possible. and, And then they become uh supportive in an everyday way not just when i'm in crisis Mm -hmm. so so the time we make thyme honey by steeping thyme leaves in in honey thyme is an amazing herb that goes with like leeks and potatoes leek potato soup in the winter any kinds of soups or stews it's antimicrobial so it helps keep the body um Fending off any kind of what you might call outside pernicious influence that might like to get a toehold in you by using time as an ally on a regular basis, it just helps the body fend off things that would want to come and get settled in. It doesn't make a good habitat when you use herbs on a regular basis you don't become a good habitat for disease.
0: Uh, Another one that's all over the place right here right now is uh, miner's lettuce and something you mentioned on your blog as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, the miner's lettuce. Uh, I actually was the head gardener for, um, well, I was called the kitchen garden goddess at the herb farm restaurant in uh, Woodinville, Washington. And we were always looking for plants that could be brought into the garden that were wild plants but would be, be willing to grow in the garden setting. So miner's lettuce is one of those, Claytonia, and it is um, really nice, cold, durable, so you can have it through the edge season. Uh, In the summer, it seems to go dormant more, but in the cool of fall and spring, the miner's lettuce becomes a, a major component in our salad making. We use a lot of the herbs, wild plants, Uh, in a salad that we do every day by picking different wild plants, weeds mostly, what people would think of as weeds, dandelions and um, clover and things like that, mincing them up and putting them in the salad on a daily basis. Again, it's that continual use in small amounts that just gives the body a vitality it wouldn't have otherwise.
0: And another one you mentioned, which I don't think we have here, I've heard of, I don't know if I've ever seen, is aronia berry. What is that?
1: Oh, aronia. Yeah, aronia is amazing. Uh, we, have a, we only have one aronia. There's different, a lot of different kinds of aronia, but we have a Viking aronia. I planted it in 1995, and that plant took about five years to settle. It's a, it's a great plant for a hedge. It gets about six foot by six foot and our goat really loves to eat the, the leaves and twigs. And so she and um, I have managed the Aronia. But after five years, we would get up to 20 pounds of berries a year off of that one. Wow. Self, it's a self-fertile shrub, so you don't have to have two for cross-pollination. And it's higher in uh, antioxidants than it's like. 10 times above any of the ones people are thinking, like blueberries or a a KE, any of those plants that people think of as antioxidants. Aronia just blasts them out of the water. It's 10 times higher in the deep, dark, rich Almost black-colored berry, but the berry is not a snack berry. It's not a sweet berry. It's not something that you would go out and graze on. Just um, the blueberry bush is next to it. We graze the blueberry and we pick the aronia and make it into syrups and jams, and um, it makes a dynamite wine. Yeah, and that same like with wine, when we make wine from from fruits that grow around us, fruits or flowers, plants, herbs. The wine is also condensed. The nutrient value is condensed in the amount of plant material you put in your wine. So I think it's one of the greatest ways to bring our fruits and berries into our winter life.
0: How do you make the wine?
1: Oh, I have a kind of standard recipe. I usually only make a gallon at a time now. Uh, I used to, you know, when you're young and you have all that energy and you don't know what to do with it, like five gallons of everything. And so as a um, a woman who my friend um, Harvest Moon says with years, I've realized I could make five one-gallon batches of wine through the course of the summer and have a much more interesting winter and still have way plenty to give away as uh, gifts when I go to eat at someone's house or people come to visit us. And so uh, we just made dandelion wine. So I'm going to tell you about that because it's fresh on my mind. So one gallon of wine uses three pounds of sugar in my recipe, which makes a mild, almost a little sweet wine. If you wanted it, not so sweet, less sugar. So one gallon of dandelion flowers. We pick the petals off for some unknown reason, but it actually is a lot of fun if you get a bunch of people together and you can sit there and pick them off. And then pour boiling water, three quarts of boiling water, over the dandelion flowers. I use organic orange and lemon. We were we had an amazing crop of Myers lemon on our tree this year. We got seven lemons. So one lemon was sliced up, one orange was sliced up, peel and all, that's put in, the boiling water's poured over, three quarts. And then two pounds of the sugar, that's all stirred together. When it cools down to um, blood heat, which would be around 96 or 100 degrees, then we add the yeast. And so I just uh, sometimes use baking yeast. Now there's so many wine-making shops around, you can get a lot of interesting yeasts to mm-hmm. use. And so that's a lot of fun. So then we pitch the yeast into that wine, the primary fermentation, and really watch it go. It's like it just, those yeast organisms get in there and start eating the sugar and transforming them into alcohol. And then about, mm, well, four or five days later, when the, the ferment starts to soften and go, go slower, then we strain everything off. And Oh, and I put two tea bags in because dandelion doesn't have much in the way of tannin. Mm -hmm. So two black tea bags, take care of that. Then strain it off, pour it into the secondary fermenter, which is just a one-gallon jug, and then add the last pound of sugar dissolved into the quart of water to kick off the fermentation again and get it to go uh, rapidly so that it will then... Uh, carry on until it finishes. what happens is the yeasts eat the sugars to the point of making alcohol, which actually kills them, and then that 's the end of fermentation it 's a very simple process. You can use the same process with all the fruits and um and the flowers and the and the herbs
0: other than aronia berry and uh dandelion. What other wines have you made and you have a do you have a favorite
1: dandelion's probably my favorite wine. The Aronia is nice because it's so deep and dark, and so it's a really rich addition to a winter life. Um, Like a
0: red wine, kind of?
1: It's kind of like that. It would be the equivalent of, say, Cabernet, dark, rich, uh, full-bodied wine, where the Dandelion, I've always thought it was the pollen, but I don't know what it is. Dandelion is a very heady wine. It just makes you giggle and you know, it's fun. It's a fun wine, and the other one is much more like you would drink it at in the evening around the fire, while you're looking at the seed catalogs. It just, it just is a. Um, you see, it, the beauty for me about all of this is what what started out as kind of positive, contrary. Uh, I didn't want to be part of the culture. What I ended up falling into was this amazing integrated. Way of living.
0: So, speaking of that, this is a little bit of an off-the-wall question, but I I was curious about generational differences. So, I'm in my fifties. You're of a certain age. Um, tell me about um, your generation and um, that that dropping out and. Uh, I don't know what exactly where I'm going with this, but um, I guess tell me about the lessons of your generation, perhaps what what you learned, what was good, what what didn't work, and then what you see as your role in terms of imparting what you learned to to people who are, are younger.
1: Oh, that is such a beautiful question. Thank you, Eric. You know what I've learned in my years, and I'm 68. And so I, I lived through um, the civil rights era. I was alive when a president was assassinated, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So I lived through a lot of things in my life and watched things. And, and I, I didn't really want to be part of the culture that I was growing up in. Again, because I felt that what they were saying wasn't what they were doing. And, and so I never really wanted to drop out. I was not a dropout, and I'm certainly not a quitter. So when I was in college, I went to a college where you could make up your own program. Everyone thought, finally, there's a place Eagle Song will make it. But I couldn't even make it there because I invented a program where I could go to the ocean and live in a remote area uh, with one other person for the Spring Quarter, and my job was to read Thoreau, look at the tide pools and uh chart the life in the tide pools, and then just um, keep a journal well, after three months of that, I decided i would I would not drop out of culture; I would actually drop into life, so I left school and and I just set up about learning about life, because I wanted a greater understanding. I wanted to know how do things really work. So I have always lived on the periphery, and I've had amazing (laughs) opportunities to do incredible, unusual things. I was a commercial fisherman in southeast Alaska, and so spent a lot of time in a boat living with the tides and um, the seasons and the flux and influx of salmon species and so i i gained some information in that then we lost our fishing license due to a political thing that happened and needed a new job and so all the people who had fishing boats in alaska ended up on the pipeline so i helped actually to create the trans or the alaska pipeline up in the arctic my job was running from the Brooks Range to the Arctic o- Ocean, so I got to see a lot of nature up there I would have never had an opportunity to see, and I worked beside um, some incredibly amazing and interesting people from really all over the world, and and I got to see how things work in that odd situation, and so then um, we actually had enough money to buy a farm, which we did, and I wanted to raise... Uh, animals and I wanted to have a garden. Ultimately, my whole desire in life was to have a garden. So I wanted a place where I could grow tomatoes without shelter. And we found a beautiful farm in Southwest Washington where my first son was born. Well, now that was a whole another episode of I've raised goats and horses and all kinds of animals. And now I had a human being that was um, going to need tending and care and and I was pretty adamant about my children weren't going to be vaccinated. I know it's a big thing now, and a lot of people have a lot of really intense feelings around it. But when I did it, it wasn't like it is now. It was just a choice I made, and and it worked for us. But it also meant that I had to be attentive to how was I going to take care of our health. And that's when I got interested in herbs, because I really cared... And I also got really interested in food because I really wanted to grow the strongest, most vital um, child that I could. And that's when I think women really get attentive to the world they live in and what's going on around them and how they want to engage in it. And so, so that, was, uh, that, that became the trial ground for everything I learned to do with herbs was raising my children and livestock, and then working with wild plants, working with uh, domesticated plants, uh, all kinds of plants. So what I see with young people today is they did just what we did. You know, when you're young, Eric, I'm sure you can remember it, you really, really do believe you have the answers for life, and you want to put them into practice. And so I see a lot of young people that are well, just in the world of herbalism, I'm really encouraged because there was no formal herbalism when I was um, beginning over 40 years ago. And we really had to, to hunt and peck and figure out all these things and talk to each other and, and come up with some different ways of taking care of ourselves because we were young and we wanted to change the world. We wanted to make the world a better place. I see the same thing in young people today and i also see that stubbornness in them that they're not going to listen to the older people because they have to try it out on their own and test things and and so that's fun and so my role now is basically to support them in their expansion and expression of of what they see for their lives and and i've come to believe that life's uh it's Like we think the people who are leading are in charge, but life is more like a boat. Maybe I learned this from fishing. The boat isn't steered at the bow. It's steered from the the back of the boat where the rudder is. It's the rudder that actually determines where the bow goes. And I look to the ancestors as our rudder. And as I get closer and closer to them, they seem to be able to communicate with me better than they did when I was a young person. And I trust them. I trust the the field of energy in the people who have lived on this planet for eons of time, all of them are my ancestors. All of them hold amazing wisdom about where we're headed and how we might actually get there. So I I like this intergenerational thing. We put on the Women's Herb Conference. That actually is a nice segue up here in Washington, and it's an intergenerational conference. We really want young girls to come. We really want teenage maidens to come and mothers and older women because in that context and and using plants and the earth as our common ground, we actually break through – a lot of the barriers that are in place in the culture at large where women won't talk to each other or can't talk to each other. We just create a container that allows for the really ancient way of being together where where elders really are honored for what their years have brought to them and young people are honored for the vivaciousness and vitality of what what they are experiencing at any given time and and we put all that together and make amazing juicy mix and
0: when does that conference happen? It's coming up, I assume right
1: it's in September it's at the fall equinox, you know one of those places where nature takes a breath and the day and the night are the same length, and we're heading into the darkness, so we like to have it at the fall equinox so people have something to carry into the dark time um, that lifts their heart and helps them remember that this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. And also just the wonder of darkness. You know, seeds like darkness to start in. It's it's a great place to regenerate, recover, um, really. And that's why I like the garden. The garden teaches me how life is, in relationship with na- nature and in relative to seasons and really relative to daylight you know it really helps me remember the sun is the source of all all energy in our in our little constellation
0: uh the the women's herbal conference uh, makes me want to ask this question, which is often when I am at any kind of gardening or cooking related uh, or herbal related class, I am the only man there, and I always wonder what are what, what about gender roles? Like, what are first of all, what are the men doing? I have no idea where they are, and <laughs> um. Uh, and uh, speaking as someone yourself who is, it sounds like you've been involved in professions that are traditionally associated with men, fishing and, and pipeline creation, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Very adventurous stuff. Um, I wonder if you could talk about gender roles in in uh, gardening and the plant world and um, uh, well, your thoughts on that.
1: Oh, my gosh. You know, they almost... Burned Linnaeus at the stake for even suggesting the plants had anything to do with, with sex. Mm-hmm. So I actually um, there are male and female everything's, and and so I don't really think that tasks are are necessarily gender related. That people like to do certain things and they don't like to do other things, and but on the basic level. Everyone should know how to take care of themselves and um, be self-maintaining because that's the best way to be sovereign and to do what you want to do in your life. When you know how to take care of yourself, and my goal is to transmit to people the easiest possible way to take care of yourself for the greatest return so that you can actually use your creative life to be what it is you want, what to do what it is you want to do in life. Maybe four hours a day is plenty to put towards what it takes to maintain yourself. And the rest of the time is devoted to the creative aspect of our lives, what it, what it is we've come here to, you know, how to express ourselves. Yeah, I, I liked doing all the work I did in the world. I really loved being able to do the work without having gender impose too much on me I think a lot of times people let those ideas limit them and I it didn't occur to me I couldn't do what I wanted to do in my life so I guess I would invite people to be less concerned about that and more concerned about what do you want to do in your life and figure out a way to do it like life our life is our art so learning how to get the most energy possible not being too like at our women's conference we enjoy having the boys come up to eight years old in most traditional cultures that were earth-based cultures the boys hung with the women until they were about eight years old because in those first eight years everybody learned what they needed to survive what berries to eat what when to harvest what how to do whatever needs done so For me, the wise woman tradition is the way that I practice herbalism. And it's the tradition that really is closely related to nature and what uh, nature offers, how to get the most energy by working with nature and not against nature. So herbalism, for me, is not so much around how to treat disease. It's more about how to engage life. And so a lot of our Limiting factors are just ideas that people have about who should do what or how they should do it and Breaking free of those ideas is some of the biggest challenge to our times Because the world's asking us to be different and we don't really know the new steps to the dance So I have a you know people are always striving for balance and I find balance to be very exhausting. We get two moments of it in day and light at the equinoxes, but what I like is a word called dynamic disequilibrium. This This is like falling, but you're doing it with rhythm, so you're dancing. Life is about movement, life is about engaging Life is, is, is supposed to be messy and simple and fun. Well, supposed to. There you have one of those words. that <laughs> heard. So I don't know about any of that other stuff. All I know is that by engaging my own curiosity and following the impulses that took me to places that kept my life interesting, I have been able to do all kinds of things. And you know what I like to do now? Garden, cook, and hang out with my grandkids.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go
1: because they actually are so full of life. They don't have all the rules yet. So that's very traditional too that the that the elders hang with little little kids and I think that's one of the sweetest things nature ever did was to was to bring into my life right at this time that which is the most alive which gives me something to wake up to every morning and think wow that is awesome. <laughs> That is so awesome.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to conclude. Uh, If people want to find out more about what you're up to, about the uh, Pacific Women's Herbal Conference or other classes you might be teaching, what's the best way that that people can do that?
1: Well, the best way is to come to my website, which is eaglesong-gardener.com. So eaglesong, E-A-G-L-E-D-E dot gardenercom People say, what's the dash about? And it's like, one time I was in the cemetery looking at gravestones and, you know, the person born in 1922, they died in 2010. But it's the dash that is really important. What's between that coming and going? So eaglesong-gardener.com The women's conference is the Pacific Women's Herbalconference.com Pacific Women's com. And we have the conference uh, in September on the equinox.
0: Well, I hope people will uh, take a look at that and we'll have some links in the show notes. And well, thank you, Eagle Song.
1: I thank you, Eric. And I really want to thank you for all of the... Um, you you put out the the most thought-provoking I don't even know what you call it.
0: Blog posts?
1: <laughs> blog posts. I really enjoy your blog posts because they always take me to places that are interesting and engaging.
0: Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. That was Song Gardener. You can visit her website at eaglesong-gardener.com. And find out more about the Pacific Women's Herbal Conference at pacificwomensherbalconference.com. Thank you again to all our supporters. The closing music is by Dr. Frankenstein.